Thanks for tuning into this episode of CannaCast. I'm your host, Eric Allstatter, Eisner Amper's National Cannabis and Hemp Practice Leader. Today we're going to speak with Nick Vita, the Chief Executive Officer and one of the co-founders of Columbia Care, a publicly traded company and one of the nation's largest fully integrated multi-state cannabis companies with pharmacies, dispensaries, home delivery, cultivation, and manufacturing facilities. Licensed to operate in 18 states, including California, Florida, Illinois, New York, and also in the European Union with ongoing expansion activities to the United States and abroad. Columbia Care made news last month when it bought a 34-acre Riverhead Long Island greenhouse for its medical cannabis business and to meet the growing need of New Yorkers who expect adult-use recreational cannabis to be available in 2022. Thanks for joining me today, Nick. Hey, thanks for having me, Eric. It's great to see you. Nick, Columbia Care is developed into a $500 million company in an industry that is still illegal on the federal level. Can you give us a brief overview of Columbia Care and how you got there? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's funny. It's uh, We are actually not only sort of one of the larger companies, we're actually the oldest multi-state operator. So our first market uh, technically was Washington, D.C. And, and Arizona. And I remember um, when we first began, everyone thought we were crazy because uh no one believed that the regulatory and legal changes could happen the way they have as quickly as they have. And um, what I would say is, you know, like any other entrepreneurial endeavor, we learned everything kind of the, the hard way. So we made every mistake in the book. Uh, and I think the, the one area that has become a, a core competency for the organization is that when we make a mistake, we really don't make the same mistake twice. Um, so it's been a fascinating, fascinating journey because unlike a lot of businesses, we don't have the normal infrastructure systems and vendors and counterparties that a lot of industries take for granted. So, for example, we don't have access to the banking system. Um, we couldn't even hire plumbers at one point because we couldn't have bank accounts, so we didn't know how to pay people. So what, as we built out a business that not only had an agricultural component, but also a manufacturing and retail component, um, we had to figure everything out as if nothing else ever existed at all in the business world. Um, and so to say that uh, the, the trend line has gone from the lower left to the upper right in hindsight, I think is fair, but at the time it seemed very, very sort of very volatile because there were some great moments and there were some moments of, of real concern. And like any young company, um, there were there were days when we weren't sure we were gonna have to, we, we weren't sure how we were gonna solve the problems, but we did one at a time and we just keep, kept our feet moving. So it was, a uh, it's been a, a really incredible, um, incredible opportunity. But more importantly, it's been a great, um, a great sort of challenge to create a new business in a new sector, um, and then on top of it, try to create that business in a way that actually is relevant to the 21st century, which is very different than I think how companies built themselves. You know, in the you know even as as recently as the 1990s. Thanks, Nick. What does it mean to the industry that New York State, which obviously includes New York City, has approved adult-use recreational cannabis? I think it's very, very important. Uh, not only is you know New York the largest East Coast state, but it's a bellwether, meaning you know so goes New York, so goes the rest of the country. And I think that you know New York has always been the capital of the world. It continues to be, um, you know, in spite of COVID. And you know, now we look at the New York market, which has always had a very strong uh, illicit market, and the state has decided to, to sort of tax and regulate and make cannabis legal, uh, not only for medical purposes but for adult use purposes. And I think you're going to see a, a really significant, not only tax revenue contribution, but also a jobs contribution on the manufacturing, agricultural, and the retail side. Now, I know Columbia Care is a medicinal cannabis company, but also a recreational cannabis company. How different is it to run those two industries, those two different companies? 
In some respects, it's very similar. Um, in others, it's very different. So our products all begin with the same plant um, and the same many of the same chemicals. I think what makes medical unique to uh, the adult use is that you have many more regulations. You have, for example, uh, much in general, you have a much more regimented um, sort of distribution and access point, which is different than adult use. So rather than having an age limit, you actually have to have a qualifying condition and you have to have the involvement of a doctor. Um, you know, we've always, we, because we're such an old company, uh, every single one of our markets is at one point was a medical market. And those markets have now transitioned to adult uses. As a result, we've transitioned. But the um, I think that the things that make it similar, you still have compliance. You know, we still have internal standards that are higher in general than most of the markets we operate in. Um, you know, we have very significant training. We have things that constantly evolve along with the organization to allow us to scale, you know, from basically zero employees and zero dollars to you know, almost 3000 employees and over, you know, 500 million in top line. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it, it, there's no kind of simple answer to that question. Uh, but there is definitely overlap in the Venn diagram. I think though, the, the biggest difference and the biggest challenge that we continue to work through and, and really meet head on is the conversion into a branding environment from a, just a medical and, and data driven environment. And by that, I mean, we really do have to have sort of the change to our our, our storefront, which we just announced moving from Columbia Care to Cannabis. Um, we're introducing a number of new product lines and form factors that I think are more relevant for not only the wellness category, um, but also the adult use category. So we'll have a balanced portfolio as opposed to simply medically uh, oriented products. Um, but that's that's part of the fun, the, the fun aspect of the business is you really get to build something um, and address the markets as they as they evolve and you become a catalyst for that develop, you know, that evolution. The preliminary rules for New York, according to what I've seen, appear to be designed to allow for a wide variety of entrepreneurs and companies to participate in the industry. What impact will that have on the industry? Well, uh, it's it's a it's a very foundational impact. You now have more of a normalized operating environment where you have uh, better access, you have wider access, you'll have more operating uh, operators participating in the marketplace. That that will bring additional capital investment and additional um, sort of awareness. Uh, the I think the most fundamental thing that New York has done, which a lot of other co states have done as well, is is make sure that there's a diversity and inclusion element to the conversion from medical to adult use. So you're going to see a new cast of uh, entrepreneurs given the opportunity to enter the cannabis market uh, with an advantaged uh, position. And uh, hopefully that translates into real economic success and economic diversity among communities that haven't had the, the opportunity to participate. Um, in the regulated cannabis market uh, to, you know, to, to a large extent. And that's, to me, very, very exciting. And it also creates a, a very interesting um, a sort of network effect where we have, a, we have a direct interest as one of the oldest operators to see diversity and inclusion um, sort of manifest in real economic success and business development um, so that you can see that synergy between sort of the, the policy demands, uh, the regulatory demands, and the, the operational and financial outcomes. Earlier, you spoke about the differences and similarities in running a medicinal cannabis company compared to a recreational cannabis company. How hard is it to implement a recreational product line in a medicinal environment? It depends on the regulations. So some markets like New York, you know, you couldn't have a smokable flower. You had to have uh, dose metered form factors that are that are effectively um, pharmaceutical products and made to FDA sort of, um, you know, standards. Um, 
other markets, you can have a much more fluid uh, overlap between medical products and adult use products. And in some markets, it's very difficult to distinguish them from one another. Uh, we actually take the position that having the Columbia Care product line as, as the flagship medical products is, is something that people have always come to expect and trust. And we intend to provide those products nationally, whether they are in medical markets or adult use markets. At the same time, we're rolling out uh, and introducing and commercializing additional brands and products and form factors into the wellness and adult use markets um, that may have a little bit of a different look, different feel, different application. Um, but for us, it's part and parcel because all of our decision making starts with understanding the consumer, understanding the regulations, understanding the markets, understanding the people and the communities we serve, uh, using the data we've collected since 2012, 2013. Uh, and then applying that in a, in a very practical sense to develop and innovate the best products and the best services that are most relevant and helpful to uh, providing access to the consumers and, and patients who are interested in accessing these programs. What are the major innovations you expect to see in the coming year in the industry? Well, I think that a lot of the innovation may be considered sort of table stakes by, by, from the outside looking in because it involves uh, changing business models to accommodate a more normalized, federally regulated environment. Um, I don't know if that means the U.S. government will actually legalize cannabis, but I think that there are things that are being discussed in, in Congress and in the White House that actually could result in some pretty profound um, opportunities for the sector broadly. And so um, I think that, you know, having access to the banking system would be enormous. Uh, having access to the U.S. capital markets would be an incredible opportunity. So you would see obviously a significant reduction in cost of capital, a significant increase in access to capital, which means that companies can actually accelerate their growth and consolidate the market because this is a highly fragmented market. Um, I think that from a sort of a societal perspective, uh, you know, what we've what we observed is that um, as time has gone on, uh, cannabis has become much more mainstream. Uh, I think the inclusion aspects of the regulatory frameworks that are being developed and implemented at the state level are critical to not only sort of creating this, this, this embracing amongst the broader population, but also reaffirming the position of, uh, of having a balanced and sort of a highly equitized um, operating environment where you have an enormous amount of diversity in every respect um, at, you know, within each state program. If we focus on the New York City marketplace for a moment, is delivery services a big part of that? It is. It is. I mean, I like to, I liken this to conversations I've had with administrators and universities, you know, when, when a college wants to figure out where to put the um, put their uh, sidewalks, what they do is they plant grass and they see where the grass gets worn down first, and then they plant the sidewalks on top of it to just basically mimic the traffic, the, sort of the traffic patterns. Um, it's widely known, whether people like it or not, that the illicit market has been incredibly strong uh, in every metropolitan area, including New York. Home delivery has been a massive part of that. And so, um, you know, for us, uh, we have home delivery in New York. It's a, it's a significant part of our business. We're going to continue to lean into that. And we want to do that for a number of reasons, um, not just because it's economically smart, but also because it provides access. You know, we want to pe we want people to understand that their time is worth a lot to us. And so making sure that access, that that journey can gravitate beyond the four walls of our facilities is very important. Um, and by the way, that's a trend that you've seen in every product category. I mean, you know, how many people go to the supermarket in the COVID world rather than just having, you know, groceries delivered? So this is something that everybody's becoming more and more tech savvy and comfortable with. And we want to lead that conversation, which is one of the, the, the backbones behind our recent announcement to change our storefronts nationally to cannabis, because there's an enormous technology component that involves home delivery and virtual shopping and actually a credit card that, that, that provides consumer credit. So it's a whole range of things that I think leverage technology and, and kind of best practices and pulling and, and pull them into the cannabis setting. 
Does this current market create opportunities for growth by acquisition? Uh, it does. I mean, I think that, you know, we we were a little bit slow to the M&A game. Uh, I, I was a, you, we've talked about this, but I was a, I worked at Goldman Sachs for a long time. Um, and I was a, a banker there who saw a number of acquisitions work and a number of acquisitions create great headlines, but they're very hard to integrate. Um, and so my big fear in building Columbia Care was to make sure that we had enough of a f- stable foundation and solid foundation and leadership cast that was very, very deep so that we could integrate business as well and actually take acquisitions and turn them into real uh, opportunities to, to drive shareholder value. The, um, the fragmented nature of the markets we're in is, is significant and it's national. And so um, I just don't know how uh, over time you have a, an industry that is that remains so broken in so many different pieces when there are opportunities for scales of economy. And so we've been driving, I think, a lot of that discussion at, within the states we operate uh, to sort of try to create some synergies, uh, revenue margin um, and, and efficiencies uh, to ensure that customers have access to um, cost effective, high quality products that they're interested in and regulators have can sleep at night knowing that they have very well capitalized efficient operators that are going to always, you know, put the uh, compliance aspects of their business first. We talked earlier about Columbia Care operating in 18 states. So there's cultivation and selling in all those states. What issues does that create? And by that, I mean, you, you can't transport cannabis across, across state lines in the U.S. So it, it creates a very asset intensive business. Um, and so, you know, one way to think about it is, you know, we have to make sure that every dollar we deploy into a fixed asset is uh, sufficiently scaled so that we can generate a rate of return that makes that investment worthwhile. Um, I think that there is some, you know, some there are two schools of thought. One is that the states will continue to manage these programs and administrate them uh, for the foreseeable future, just like they do with alcohol or the banking industry or the insurance industry. And the other is that there, there will at some point be interstate commerce, in which case you have an overburdened asset base that needs to be consolidated and rationalized. You know, our strategy has, has really been predicated on the notion that the states need tax revenue, need jobs. Uh, the diversity and inclusion initiatives are critical, not only at the state political level, but also in the federal level. And as a result, there's going to be a significant um, delay uh, in terms of implementing any kind of interstate commerce because it's just politically untenable. Uh, you cannot uh, sort of undermine those two principles which have been driving these transitions from no p- programs to medical programs to adult use. At the same time, we're also preparing for a world where you do have interstate commerce. And so we're the largest grower in Colorado, um, you know, by multiples. Uh, we have significant scalable resources on the East Coast. Now you mentioned the acquisition we made in Florida. Uh, and those can become real centers of excellence uh, and hubs for distribution and manufacturing, you know, in particular regions. Uh, and, you know, so it's uh, it's sort of interesting. We, we don't know how the world will look, but we're preparing for all the eventual outcomes. And we're doing it in a way that is immediately accretive to shareholder value. Nick, the last question for today is how has COVID impacted your business? I, I think that there are three things that have made a huge difference to us. Number one, um, Cannabis was one of the few industries that nationally was designated a, an essential service. So in every single market, uh, almost every governor and state legislature designated us an essential service. So we were able, not only able, but actually required to operate throughout the COVID crisis. Um, and I think that that was a very important sort of psychological um, barrier that was broken by the political class in designating us with that degree of importance. Um, because a lot of people wondered, you know, what's... What is cannabis? They didn't really know. Most people are not in the cannabis market. But once you receive that designation, once you're once you're characterized as essential, 
it changes and it eliminates a lot of the stigma. Um, and so that was that was very important. Number two, um, I think the patterns of behavior and the willingness to try cannabis was driven by the fact that people were at home. They weren't able to go to work. They weren't able to socialize. So they wanted to take advantage of their personal time and free time in a way that was productive. Um, we saw a lot of people moving away from the alcohol industry, moving away from, you know, sort of prescription drugs and, and, and actually looking for natural, less, um, less, I guess, um, debilitating alternatives. Uh, cannabis certainly fit, fit it, you know, fills into that category very, very well. Uh, and then third, we've seen an increase in the, um, the demographics, the scope of the demographics. So it's not just, you know, people in their 20s and 30s who are coming into our stores. It's people are in their 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. That are coming into our store and everyone has coming in for a different reason um, but they all have they all have something in common that is they believe and have experienced the benefits of using cannabis uh, in their lives to improve some aspect of their life and that to me is really important and critical i don't know if that would have happened as quickly had we not had covid uh, but it certainly has accelerated over the past two years from from my perspective nick thanks for joining me today and thanks for listening to canacast a part of the eisner amper podcast series Visit eisneramper.com slash cannabis for more information and podcasts. And please join us at our next Canacast podcast where we're discussing other budding issues. Thank you.